Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning, everybody. Lily Baltrip had driven her school bus for 10 years without one accident or even a traffic ticket. Because of this, she was given the award the Texas Chauffeurs and Drivers Association Driver of the Decade. She was so excited about her commendation that she invited 17 of her friends to join her at the banquet. On her way there, however, she flipped the van she was driving, and although no one was seriously injured, all 17 passengers had to be hospitalized. Hard to believe, isn't it? Here, the Texas driver of the decade was on to her way to pick up her reward, her award, and what happened? She crashed. You know, so too, every one of us in here can find ourselves going through times when it seems like it all comes down, when the, the roof caves in and things fall apart, and the disciples were no exception. In the previous chapter, Jesus had told them that one of them would betray him, but also that Peter would deny him and Jesus would soon be leaving them. How can this be, they must have wondered. They had left everything to follow Jesus. But now it seemed as though all that was for nothing. Now, of course, we know the story. We know that it has a glorious and happy ending. But if you put yourself in their sandals, you can see it must have been a moment of real intensity, not only for the disciples, but also for Jesus. Oftentimes we look at these events only through the eyes of the disciples. But let's consider what Jesus must have been going through, as only hours after this he would be nailed to a cross to absorb the sins of all humanity. No wonder he prayed. Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me with such intensity that he actually sweat blood. Now here in John 14, in the midst of his upper room discourse, Jesus knew that the hour of great difficulty was upon him. Yet notice how he ministers to those around him. Now it's good to remember that there were no chapter divisions. And so all these hard things are the lead-in to one of the most beautiful chapters in all of Scripture, that being John chapter 14. Look at verse 1 with me. Actually, that's all we're going to be looking at. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. We're going to divide that verse into two separate parts. Part 1 is the command to not allow our hearts to be troubled. And part 2 will give us the reason why. We'll look at the other two reasons in the next couple sermons. So, why should we not let our hearts be troubled? The absolute first thing I want us to see and understand is that frequently we do have cause for our hearts to be troubled. It would not be necessary to make so much of that point if there wasn't a kind of Pollyanna Christianity in our day that seeks to deny that. It's the kind of Christianity that pretends that there are no troubles for any truly surrendered child of God. 
This view takes the view of Romans 8.28 to mean that only good things come into the life of those who truly love God. Where we read, and we know that in all things God works with them to the good of those who love him. But rather than seeing that that verse actually says that evil will indeed come, but that God will nevertheless accomplish his own good purposes in spite of it. That view is unrealistic and uninformed because evil does exist and troubles do come. Now, since I have the microphone, allow me a pet peeve concerning this. When bad things happen to a believer, some people will say or post on Facebook that God's got this. Now, I absolutely agree that God's got this, but not the way some people believe. Let me give you an example. When Connie got cancer and someone would say that, what they are often meaning is, don't worry about anything, God is going to heal you. And thank God, in Connie's case, he did. But here comes my problem with that kind of thinking. God is sovereign and only does what is right. So even though for a time I would have been nigh inconsolable if Connie had died from her cancer, that doesn't negate who God is. I could still say even at the funeral that God's got this. Now if that is something you say, I'm not coming down on you, I just want you to make sure that you really understand what that means. Because if you say that to someone and their child still dies or they still lose their job or their house, they may come back to you for some clarification. I should now step down off my soapbox. All I'm saying is that Christians should be realist. They are realist about all of life's problems. At the same time, however, we must add that they are also realist about the power of God and his promises. And this means that although there is cause to be troubled, nevertheless there is even a greater cause not to be troubled. This is the second important point. Regardless of what there may be to cause us to be troubled as Christians, there is even more cause for us not to be troubled. Now, Jesus here is not urging trouble-free men not to begin to worry. He is talking to men whose hearts are far from tranquil. Once again, we should not be misled by that chapter division. These words are to be taken in close connection with the preceding chapter. Think about that. Peter has been thrown into consternation at the prediction of his threefold denial of Christ. And we cannot doubt that this also had the effect on the others also. If Peter was to deny Jesus, did that not mean that some great trial was obviously imminent? Moreover, Jesus had spoken of his impending departure. And it was a departure to a place where they could not follow him. Now, to men who have left everything to follow their leader, to be told that he's about to leave them had to be absolutely shattering. And so, they are all very disturbed. And Jesus knows that within just a few short hours, they're going to be even more disturbed. So he tells them to be calm. Rightly understood and applied, John 14 is good medicine for our hearts. For we, too, live in an age of anxiety. 
A good title for our times would be the cardiac age. Many of us have troubled hearts today. And if that is not bad enough, we also have the tendency to borrow trouble as we can imagine things to be worse than they really are. It was Keats who said, Imaginary grievances have always been my torment more than the real ones. I agree with that. Which is worse, the actual hypodermic injection in the dentist chair or the anticipation? As you walk into that antiseptic smelling office, sign your name, then you walk down that long hallway. It feels like you're heading to the electric chair instead of the dentist chair. And it's surrounded by all these ghoulish-looking instruments. Imagine fears can be far worse than reality. Let's come to terms with what is mankind's greatest trouble. The greatest enemy of mankind, saved or unsaved, is death. It is the one thing that none of us have any control over whatsoever. The late author Joseph Bailey knew a lot about death. He had experienced its sting many different times. His newborn son died right after surgery. His five-year-old boy died from leukemia, and his 18-year-old was killed in a sledding accident complicated by mild hemophilia. Each encounter taught him a different lesson on the painful reality of death. He writes truthfully and soberly, about the subject in the opening of his book, The Last Thing We Talk About. Listen closely. I think this is really powerful. He writes, The hearse began its grievous journey many thousand years ago, whether it was a sled, wagon, or Cadillac. The conveyance has changed, but the corpse it carries remains the same. Birth and death enclose a person in a shorter parenthesis of the present. And the brackets at the beginning and at the end of life are still impenetrable. This frustrates us, especially in a time of scientific breakthrough and exploding knowledge, that we should be able to break out of Earth's environment and yet be stopped cold by death's unyielding mystery. Heart monitors may replace a mirror held before the mouth. Autopsies may become more sophisticated. Cosmetic embalming may take the place of pennies on the eyelids and canvas shrouds, but death continues to confront us. Everything changes, but death is changeless. Dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow, with noble prize winner and prostitute, mother, infant, teen, and old man. The hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants the heart, as well as the hopeful recipient for the funeral director as well as the corpse he manipulates. Death spares none. What powerful, penetrating words written by someone who became all too familiar with death. So if mankind is to have any kind of hope, then our greatest enemy, death, must be defeated. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher mathematician, painted a vivid picture of the human dilemma when he wrote, Imagine a number of men in chains, all under sentence of death, some of whom are each day butchered in the sight of others. Those remaining see their own condition and that of their fellows, and looking at each other with grief and despair, await their turn. 
This is an image of the human condition. Now, the Apostle Paul understood that death was mankind's greatest enemy. If it cannot be defeated, then there is no hope for any of us. Now, as a result of this predicament, some have resorted to wallowing in despair or diverting our attention into any number of amusements. But the wise person said Pascal would wager their life on God. Now, besides just being completely bad science, this is the biggest downside of the evolutionists. You see, one of the great tests of any kind of worldview is what does it have to say to a dying person? And I do not know what evolution has to say to a nine-year-old girl dying from a brain tumor other than, sorry, kiddo, that's just tough luck. Listen to me. The survival of the species cannot mean much if the survival of individuals are meaningless like that. And one psychology professor had this upbeat thought about our impending deaths. He writes, if humans had an ongoing awareness of their vulnerability and mortality, they would be twitching blobs of biological protoplasm, completely profuse with anxiety and unable to effectively respond to the demands of their immediate surroundings. You know he must have been popular at the family picnic, right? <laughs> this is how Bertrand Russell, an atheist from a previous century, put it. In the visible world, the Milky Way is just a tiny fragment. Within this fragment, the solar system is an infinitesimal speck, and within that speck, our planet is a microscopic dot. On this dot, tiny lumps of carbon and water crawl about for a few years till they are dissolved again into the elements of which they are compounded. Well, praise the Lord. Where do I sign up for that worldview? <laughs> now, is it me or is that just a tad bit depressing? Would you want me to read that at your funeral? <laughs> Here lies a little lump of carbon and water crawling around the speck for a while. Now they're gone. Oh, well. Adios, au revoir, and chili con carne. Now, I've never heard anyone say, one day I realized there was no God, no one behind reality, or no life after death. And I realized existence was just a meaningless accident begun by chance and destined for oblivion, and that knowledge really changed my life. I used to be addicted to booze, but the law of natural selection has set me free. I used to be greedy, but the story of the Big Bang has now made me generous. I used to be gripped with fear, but now random chance has made me brave. I have never heard the story of an accidental, meaningless universe changing a life like that. But I have heard countless testimonies of those same type of people being converted and transformed into children of the Most High God. And so this particular section of scripture is good for those who are struggling with heart troubles. Now, I don't mean the kind of troubles that can be treated with a glycerin pill or bypass surgery. In some ways, that kind of heart trouble is easier to cure. I'm referring to the kind of heart trouble that still sleep and keeps the mind churning throughout the day. The kind of trouble that induces stress and just nullifies all the joy in your life. Now, some call that worry, but we Christians have more 
acceptable terms. We refer to such things as concern, interest, lack of peace, or my favorite, burden. To be burdened over some situation that we cannot control sounds so much more spiritual than I'm just worried sick about this. Let's face it, when something terrible occurs in life, humanity immediately looks heavenward and asks one or two questions. Why did God allow this to happen? Or where was God? Both suggest the Lord was either unable or unwilling to prevent whatever tragedy has occurred. Now, when pressed by worldly affliction, we can naturally begin to wonder if he has abandoned us as we can begin to doubt his goodness and his power. Listen, life, I sound like Charles Stanley, life in this fallen, sin-cursed world is packed with troubles and trials. But instead of pretending that they do not exist, Scripture faces the hardships directly. Job, no stranger to suffering, said, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Eliphaz, one of his counselors, said, that man is born for troubles just as sparks fly upward. In Jeremiah 20, 18, the prophet lamented, Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look at trouble and sorrow so that all my days have been spent in shame? Knowing that his followers would face troubles in life, Christ commanded them, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Every day has trouble enough of its own. In John 16, he reiterated that reality, saying, In the world you will have tribulation, but take cheer, I have overcome the world. Paul and Barnabas reminded the believers in Asia Minor that it was through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So in that context, let's keep in mind that the last few days have been an emotional roller coaster for these disciples. Their fervent messianic hopes had reached an apex during the dizzying excitement of the triumphal entry, only to be publicly dashed when Jesus announced his impending death. So, what is a Christian to do? when the world falls in around them. What is she to do in that great day of trouble? Does life really have any kind of meaning? This is not an idle question. Because although we do not always like to think about it, life is filled with trouble. Disappointment is a trouble. And there are many disappointments. We are disappointed often with ourselves, for we're not what we always want to be. We want to be strong, but we're weak. We want to be successful, but we may experience many failures. We want to be liked, but other people, at best, may seem indifferent to us. We're also disappointed with other people, with a husband, wife, son, daughter, friend, employer, employee, whatever the case may be. I read about a man and his friend. His, his friend was a drunk. He just drank all the time, so he really began to worry about him. He would tell him, if you keep drinking like this, it's going to destroy you. But his friend refused to listen. So the man decided to show his drunken friend an object lesson. He got a worm, and he filled a glass full of water, and he put the worm in the water. 
He had his friend watch the worm scurry around for about a minute. Then he took the worm out, no worse for wear. Then he put that same worm in a glass full of scotch in front of his friend. After about 30 seconds, the worm had died. He looked at his friend. He said, do you finally get the point? His friend said, I get the point, absolutely. I think what you're saying to me is that if you drink a lot of booze, you'll never have to worry about getting worms. He missed the point. I don't want you to miss the point. I don't want you to miss the point that death is inevitable. I don't want to miss the point about that you're going to have an afterlife and that's going to be determined by how you live this life. So what is a solution to heart trouble? When Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled, he used a very picturesque word there. The idea is, don't let your heart shudder. It's a strong word. And he was saying specifically to the disciples, especially in the light of the imminent cross, it may look like your world is falling in and all is lost and the darkness is going to engulf you, but don't let your hearts be troubled. Then he explained how to do this. Trust in God. Trust also in me. The way to have an untroubled heart is to believe in God and to believe in Jesus. That's really all there is to it. And the tenses tell us, keep on believing in God and keep on believing in Jesus. You know, if we would keep the, the attributes of God in mind, things like his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his loving character, our hearts would not be troubled like they often are. The Lord knew that we would need a further explanation of what was involved. So he went on to specifically instruct us on the nature of the belief that will deliver our troubled hearts, which we're going to look at in the coming weeks. The key to remember that we have is that we have a Heavenly Father who is just that. He is the perfect Father. Now imagine you have a five-year-old child that you love very much. Let's just say this child has been sick, and you're afraid you might lose her. Then the doctors tell you that she can have an operation. In fact, it's a very simple one, much like having your tonsils taken out, and it's completely without risk. She will live, they say. We promise you that she's going to be fine. Well, your joy knows no bounds, but your five-year-old is still scared to death. She's dreading the operation. She is frightened by the surgeon. She does not yet know that all is going to be well. You try to reassure her, but she just doesn't understand. So you cannot let her see the full joy of your heart. You can't joke around. You can't laugh because she might think that you don't care. You must take her fear seriously. You must let her know that you empathize. But every once in a while, you have to leave the sick room to laugh and dance around because you know everything's going to be well. Let me ask us all something this morning. What if the human condition is something like that? The Apostle John says that one day God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For all those former things have passed away. What if that is actually 
the way things are going to be? What if all things are really one day going to be okay? And more than okay, absolutely glorious. What if Jesus knew this? I mean, really knew it. And we know that he did because just 33 years earlier, he had left that same heaven. Then everything down here would have looked different to him. Jesus would be the parent, and then we would be the five-year-old in the sick room. And he would have to accommodate himself to us. He would have to knit his brow and nod his head and take our fear seriously. But every once in a while, he would have to excuse himself from the room and just go outside and laugh. So what is our part? We have to just believe and guard our hearts against despair. Why? God's got this in the truest sense of that saying. John Flavel in his classic Puritan work, Keeping the Heart, has this to say. It's a little lengthy and the language is a tad archaic, but it's definitely worth our time. He writes, it may support thy heart to consider that in these troubles God is performing that work in which thy soul would rejoice if thou couldst see the design of it. We are clouded with much ignorance. We are not able to discern how particular provinces tend to the fulfillment of God's design. And therefore, like Israel in the wilderness, are often murmuring because providence leads us about in a howling desert where we are exposed to difficulties. Though then he led them and is now leading us by the right way to a city of habitation. If you could but see how God in his secret counsel has exactly laid out the whole plan of your salvation, even to the smallest means and circumstances, could you but discern the admirable harmony of divine dispensations, their mutual relations together with the general respect they all have at the last end, I love this next part. Had you the liberty to make your own choice, you would of all conditions in the world choose that in which you now are. Providence is like a curious piece of tapestry made out of a thousand shreds, which single appear useless, but put together they represent a beautiful history to the eye. I love that. We just have to endure hardships and watch what we allow into our hearts. Well, the discipline of watching our hearts is like a home security system in many ways. And effective surveillance systems include several components, such as security cameras, motion sensors, floodlights, electric locks, and high decibel alarms. All these components serve but one purpose, and that is protecting the home from dangerous intruders. In similar fashion, watchfulness embraces a variety of practices such as self-examination, prayer, fasting, meditation, and accountability. But they are all governed by the single intention of keeping one's heart. And my friends, guarding the gates of our heart has never been more important than it is today. Why? We live in a media-drenched society. It is a world that assaults our senses and our souls with a ceaseless barrage of sights, sounds, images, and ideas. And so we should keep our lives as far from the opportunities to sin as we would keep a can of gasoline from an open flame. 
So yes, we are going to have troubles in this life, but we can trust the Lord. Or we can become a bunch of pessimistic Eeyores who suck the joy out of everything. Smile first thing in the morning and get it over with, joke W.C. Fields. If you find anything to laugh about, it's only because you're not paying attention, echoed Groucho Marx. Now, is that how you want to live? It makes me think of Jacob in the Old Testament. So, too, perhaps humanly speaking, Jacob had reason to be pessimistic. When his sons came to him originally saying, Dad, Joseph has been killed, he believed their untrue report. But when the same sons came to him saying, Dad, Joseph is alive and is the governor of Egypt, he couldn't believe their true report. He believed what wasn't true because it was bad and didn't believe what was true because it seemed too good. Unlike Jacob, many times we don't believe the word of God that we have heard. But the good news in all of that is even during those times, Jacob's disbelief did not derail the wagon train Joseph had sent him to pick him up and bring him back to Goshen. And so really, even our greatest enemy and last enemy is really no enemy for the Christian. As we finish up today, the New Testament also speaks metaphorically of death using variations of the word sleep. And that is fitting. Because we know that sleep doesn't end our existence or change who we really are. It simply puts us in a different realm of consciousness. In the same way, we don't cease to be just because our bodies die. Far from it. In fact, we are way more alive than we have ever been. We've just moved on into an eternal realm in the presence of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we live in a world of trouble. In just the past couple of years, the landscape of our world has dramatically changed. But thank God you have not. So when sorrow and anxiety assail us, let us remember that we have a king. And more amazingly, a father who sits on a celestial throne. And let that knowledge quieten our troubled hearts. We ask this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.